To find a lost Tudor tapestry is quite an achievement. And today I've invited Dr. Emma Cahill-Marone to discuss this rediscovery with senior curator Amina Wright from the Auckland Project. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. I'm filling in today for Rebecca Larson uh, because uh, there's a very special program coming up today. I am uh, joined here by Amina Wright, uh, who's a senior curator at the Faith Museum in Bishop Auckland. Um, Hello, Amina. How are you? Hello. Good afternoon. Um, I'm very well today. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for bringing this exciting project uh, to the to the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Um, do you want to tell us just a little bit uh, what we're going to talk about today? I know it's about tapestries and Henry VIII. That's why I'm really excited. Um, listeners will know that I'm I'm truly interested in in art history during this time. So, can you tell us a bit more first, maybe about the museum, and then a bit about the project? Do you want to start with the museum, maybe? Yeah. So. I'm talking to you from County Durham, which is in the northeast of England. And uh, this is a county that has a really interesting and ancient history. It goes all the way back to the Romans, Hadrian's Wall, and then this great figure of St. Cuthbert, who really founds the whole Christian identity of this region. And from St. Cuthbert, we have the, um, the bishops of Durham, who are the spiritual descendants, if you like, of St. Cuthbert. And they're based in Durham from the end of the 10th century. And the Bishop of Durham gradually finds himself settling in what becomes known as Bishop Auckland because there's good hunting around there. It's the gateway to Weirdale and these uplands that are very rich in game. So it's a really good place for hunting. And there he establishes a little castle on the River Weir on a headland above the river. And that is the castle that is now home in part to the Faith Museum. But we've now got six other attractions Mm. in and around the castle. And what the Auckland Project does is it's a regeneration charity. So it's a charity that is seeking to regenerate a forgotten part of England, a town in northeast England which has been very neglected where there's a lot of deprivation, very low educational attainment and through heritage we hope to kickstart that regeneration for the area. That is wonderful. And this is very close to my heart. I grew up uh, spending summers going to my grandmother's house in the northeast of England. So you're talking about an area I know well, and it's a beautiful area and there's so much history to it. But it's true. And you're right that uh, growing up, now that I remember, we did visit Hadrian's Wall, but I don't remember the thinking about a big museum or an exciting place like this. So I'm sure the, the kids now there must be so excited about this. Uh, I, I saw a video you guys sent me that we will put in the comments. And I saw, I mean, basically the whole community is involved in this, right? Yeah, the whole community has been involved. And that's been one of the surprising things is how people have got on board with this project. Their response has been incredibly positive, And the response from schools mm. has been something of a surprise. 
we hadn't expected them to be so enthusiastic and we're overwhelmed with bookings from schools, which is great. That is amazing. Um, and they're coming from huge distances as well. So the other day we had a whole year group, 120 boys came over from Bolton, mm. which is the other side of the Pennines. It's 120 miles and they came all that way for one day just to see the Faith Museum. They behave, that's a lot of boys. They were very good boys, yes. They're from a Muslim school and oh. uh, they were very bright, very interesting responses and it was very exciting to see them come in. Well, I think that's one of the most exciting things about this project and when I uh, saw that video, especially hearing those accents again, and it, it, it brings me back to, to my childhood. So I, I think about myself as a little kid, I would have loved going to the museum because you have some incredible outstanding pieces in this museum i want i want you as you're the senior curator can you can you walk us a little bit through the museum mentally at least so we can we can picture what we could see there yeah so the museum consists of two parts really two two different architectural spaces and the first is what we call the scotland wing which is one of the oldest parts of the castles of the castle and essentially what you're walking through there is a Tudor long gallery. Mm. So if you imagine quite a narrow space, and what we've done with that space is to introduce you into a journey through 6,000 years of history. So the oldest artifact that you'll see there is 6,000 years old, but it takes you right up to the year 2000. But we recognize, of course, that history doesn't finish in the year 2000. It's actually quite a long time ago now, and a lot has happened since then. And that's the area that we deal with upstairs in the museum. The more modern part of the museum is actually a brand new building that was completed in 2020 by Neil McLaughlin Architects. It's a beautiful building and in some ways it's very traditional because it's modelled on a medieval tithe barn or a Nordic longhouse. So it's a sort of barn-like shape of a building with an upper story and a lower story. And the upper story of that is where we would put the tapestry if we are successful in our bid. Um, so you'll see that after you've made this journey through history, the whole story of faith in Britain and the impact that it has had on British life and culture and still continues to do so today. And of course, in the middle of that story is this cataclysmic event of the Reformation. Mm. Um, which we represent through several different artefacts. But again, if we are successful in getting the tapestry, that would help us to expand that really pivotal story in Britain's history. Well, I'm booking my ticket to go very soon because you got me so excited to see this new building, uh, to think that old and new is coming together to explain what has been so important to so many people throughout their lives as faith has been. And uh, especially with that uh, dedicated space for this outstanding, incredible tapestry uh, that we're going to talk about. Um, and I'm really excited about this because for a long time, people thought this tapestry was lost, correct? That's right. It's last recorded in the Royal Collection in Windsor Castle, around about 1820, mm -hmm. when the new King George IV, the Prince Regent as he had been, um, was having a big clear out. He was modernizing and 
making Windsor a very magnificent palace and he got rid of a lot of stuff and we think it disappeared from Windsor about that time. We then lose trace of it and it doesn't reappear until the 1970s when it goes on the market in London and is sold to a collector in Spain. And it's only very recently been identified as one of a set of nine tapestries that were commissioned by Henry VIII. So it was in 2014 that the great tapestry expert, Thomas Campbell, saw it and he put two and two together and realized that this was one of the lost tapestries from Henry VIII's set of the life of St. Paul. Well, if um, Campbell said it's, it's this one, it's this one, because he's the tapestry master of all masters. So uh, this is just incredible. And I've been reading a bit about this and it is true that it's outstanding because this was not the, so tapestries, we have to remember, are, are usually created in, a, in sets, correct? And we know this wasn't the only set, the tapestry belonged to a set that wasn't the only time it was woven. But in this case, it is very specific because we know um, Francis I had a set of this tapestry. We know that Mary of Hungary um, had a set of, this of these tapestries too. But in the case of this surviving one, why is it so special? Because it wasn't in those sets, right? It wasn't in that original set that belonged to King Francois. He only had seven. Henry had nine. He added two extra episodes. One was the stoning of St. Stephen. Mm -hmm. And the other one is the scene that we're looking at now, which is the burning of the heathen books as, as it was catalogued. Mm -hmm. um, and Henry seems to add those two extra episodes mm -hmm. for reasons that we don't know, but we can speculate and that he is particularly interested in these two episodes from the life of St. Paul because of the parallels with his own life and the things that he's doing around the time of his commission, which is about 1535. And of course, as we know, there was so much going on in the life and government of Henry VIII in the middle of the 1530s. That is exactly true. And I've studied some of the earlier tapestries that Henry VIII received or commissioned during the first years of his life. But this is a time that I'm not so familiar with. Um, listeners might know I'm a specialist in, in the patronage of Queen Catherine of Aragon. So I had to, I had to ask you this. Um, I was thinking and reflecting on why he would um, he would commission the same set as Francois and, and, and Mary, but as for these new two tapestries, and I have to ask you, do you think his new wife could have had, uh, Queen Anne Boleyn could have had anything to do with the addition of these two tapestries? Oh, that's an interesting question. And we've not thought about that one. There are so many angles that you could take to look at these and consider them. And because they've only recently been discovered or this, this one has only recently been discovered, um, we haven't really begun that research. There's so much more to do. And that would certainly be an area that we would want to explore more. So at the moment we can speculate, you know, that Henry added these two extra episodes very consciously mm -hmm. and for very particular reasons, mm -hmm. but, 
how he arrived at that conclusion and you know why he wanted that this particular set at all we can only speculate mm -hmm. and we can look at his theology at this time we can look for instance at the idea that he is setting up the figure of Paul against the figure of Peter because mm -hmm. of course the successor of Peter is the Pope and this is exactly the time when Henry is gradually dismantling the Pope's authority in England mm -hmm. so if he can make himself akin to St Paul he's sort of setting him up himself up as a kind of a rival there are all sorts of reasons why Henry and his theology and his development of the Church of England has coincidences with with the life and teaching of St Paul. I was asking because we there's studies that have proven that she was influential in other areas uh, in, in in books that she gave to him related to religion and I think this is a topic that that people are interested in so the yeah. first thing we need to do is to bring it to England so we can study these things right um, so the tapestry is currently in a private collection and what your project is trying to do is to bring it into England to be able to display it for the public correct that's right and in order to be able to do that, we need to prove to the Spanish government, because there is an export ban mm -hmm. on this incredible piece of art. Mm -hmm. um, they don't want it to leave Spain mm -hmm. um, quite reasonably because it's such a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. So we have to prove to the Spanish government that the Auckland project would be a safe home for it, mm -hmm. that it would be a suitable institution that would look after it, that would do the research, as you say. And we've got a wonderful resource in Durham University and York University nearby in that, you know, we can organize those symposia in the same physical space as, as the tapestry, if, if need be. Um, and we can show that not only we can look after it, we can do the research, but also that is is going to be of enormous worth to the local community. Mm -hmm. And that's the aspect that I'm most excited about, really, is that we have had such a strong indication of a, a very powerful desire among local people to bring this thing to Bishop Auckland and to bring it to the northeast. Because, as you were saying before, we have so little Tudor heritage that people can visit and can see in this part of England. We actually ran a, a, a campaign during the summer and autumn where we were inviting people to indicate their support, either by giving us money if they can, but of course not everybody can donate. And a lot of people simply signed a book. And we had 2,000 signatures from people who said, yes, this has got to come. To northeast England so I think that'll be a, a big help in our case the other thing we have to do is of course is raise the money mm -hmm. so we've got to raise the four something million that it would cost to bring it over from Spain and we're doing really really well with our campaign we've just got a tiny little way yet to go oh, um, but we've only got a few weeks left it's got to be done by the end of February Oh, everybody, so. are you listening to that? You, If you want to participate in this campaign, the time is now because time is running up and you're almost there, right? We're nearly there, but we just need that little extra push. So it's justgiving.com. And if you look for Tudor Tapestry, 
you'll find the page with more information and uh, an image of this thing. Because, of course, you need to look at it to, to oh, see yes. how great it is. Oh, yes. And how precious it is because it's woven in, in, in silver thread and, and it's just precious in itself and it's precious for its artistry, too. And I'm sure that, you know, the Spanish government treasures do have bans, obviously, because they have to be protected. But um, with the wonderful project you have and the resources you have in, in the universities, like you said, of Durham and, and, and of York, I am sure that the, there will be no problem with that. Uh, because it's going to a safe home and it's going to be enjoyed by many, uh, by me, because I'm going as soon as it's there. Um, and I, I need to get back to the Northeast to, to visit. Um, are there any other ways maybe for people who cannot uh, participate, uh, making a donation? Is there other ways to con contribute to this? If you can come in person, um, we can take donations at our sites. But the main thing for now is the Just Giving page. Well, and then you can always share this podcast or other um, of, of the projects, videos that you have. So we'll leave that on the on the link on the um, show episode um, in the show notes. So you can you can look at that um, about the, the tapestry specifically. Um, have you been able to see it in person? I haven't, but my colleagues have. They made a flying visit literally flying to madrid to see it it was an overnight visit how exciting um, so we were all very jealous thinking oh they're going off to madrid for the weekend no they went to a warehouse and then they went straight back to the airport i don't think they even stopped for a meal um <laughs> what but were the they first managed impressions? to see it what were the first impressions of it The first impressions were very favorable. You know, we hadn't seen this thing. We were concerned, was it damaged? What sort of condition was it in? But the extraordinary thing is that the gold and silver are in such good condition, and that's really unusual. You know, they still sparkle. Oh, they do? And so you can still, although, of course, the colors are a little faded, but they're not bad at all compared to, you know, normally when you see a tapestry, in its historic setting, you see this this big brown thing on the wall. Mm -hmm. This is not brown. It's every color and it's oh. sparkly and it's shimmery. And you really get a sense of the magic that it would have had. Something else I'm hoping for, because um, I went to the Holbein exhibition at the Royal Collection at the Queen's Gallery the other day. And there was a tapestry there. And what struck me about that I don't think it was my imagination, but what struck me was the smell of it. Mm. And it smells of wool. Mm. And if ours has that sort of smell of wool, it's incredible to think that, you know, those sheep that produced the wool lived 500 years ago. And that's also important for the stories we want to tell because Of course, uh, sheep are very important to the economy of the, the Northeast at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I can actually see some sheep from my office window <laughs> and mining also. Um, we weren't, unfortunately, we weren't mining gold and silver in the Northeast, but we were certainly mining lead. Um, so all the industries that go into it as well, they're of great interest. And we're keen to use the tapestry to teach children manual skills, which they are losing very, very quickly, even really basic things like how to thread a needle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then to teach about 
outstanding Renaissance artist, like the one who designed this tapestry too, because this tapestry is 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 rich for its materials, for its production, but also for the outstanding uh, Netherlandish um, design of it, right? It's just such a complex scene too. You, there's so many readings into it and so many layers on, into understanding. It's It's right at that time where everything changes really in England. So I think this would be the perfect addition for your wonderful museum. Um, anything else you would like to tell us about the project or how to contribute and how to bring this tapestry to the Northeast? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that people might be asking is, you know, how does it fit into the Faith Museum? Um, so I should explain that the museum is in a wing of Auckland Castle. Mm -hmm. And Auckland Castle has been the home until very recently of the Bishop of Durham. It's still his official um, place of, of office, so mm -hmm. to speak, although he doesn't physically live there anymore. I mean, who wants to live in a castle anyway? It's not the most comfortable place for a modern family. Um, but the Bishop of Durham in Henry VIII's reign was his chief advisor in the north of England. Mm -hmm. And the post was held by Cardinal Wolsey, mm -hmm. among others, but more significantly by Cuthbert Tunstall, who was involved in burning books mm -hmm. on behalf of the king. And on burning, for instance, William Tyndale's New Testament translation. Um, so there's that aspect that's very important and that ties in with the tapestry, this whole sense of the castle being the, the important Tudor residence but also the way that we're interpreting the history of faith. And I'm very interested in looking at the tapestry and seeing not just what does it tell us about the Reformation, but what do the stories in it tell us about us today? And the relevance of them today is really unexpected, I think, but once people start thinking about it. So this idea of burning books, You'd look at that, you think, oh, that's something that used to happen in the olden days. Well, no, it's not, because it's happening now. Indeed. And the way that Henry wanted to control what people published, he wanted mm -hmm. to control what they were saying, particularly about him mm -hmm. and what they were thinking, even. And these are all things that are very much in the air at the moment. The story itself about the burning of the books, it's not something that has been commanded. It's not something that someone said, right, bring all your books. We're going to burn them. It's something that people do voluntarily. They're scared of these books. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, also is something that particularly our young people might be able to relate to. Sometimes it's really easy to get involved in things that you shouldn't be messing with and that make your life hard. We have an epidemic of vaping here, for instance. You know, do you regret having got involved in that? What can you do to rid yourself of that? These are the sort of questions that we could look at with our young people that I think could be really helpful. And in the tapestry itself, although that's the central image, the burning of the books, there are actually four other stories going on, all drawn from the Acts of the Apostles. So there's a great wealth of narrative in there. There's also the architectural detail um, by this incredible artist, Peter Kirke van Elst, who is such a pioneer 
of Flemish art and so influential. He's bringing those Italian classical styles uh, over to the north. Um, the architecture is is certainly worth another look as well. So there's a an infinity of of themes that we could take from it, and we've got years and years worth of of ideas and plans for exhibitions that we could have. So, you know, if you can't visit this year, visit in the future, and there'll always be something worth seeing. I, well, I am sure um, it's incredible. I um, I am behind this project a hundred percent. I think this should be displayed in this wonderful new museum. And it's in a place where everybody can see it, but also, and this is um, going back home, is where researchers can research about it, right? And where there's tools to understand this oh, pivotal work of art, really. So I, I encourage everyone to support this project. Um, I thank you, Amina, for coming today. Um, it was been incredible, and I, I honestly I can't wait now to get to the northeast. I've always wanted to go to the, back to the northeast, but now with more reason, right? So yeah. thank you very much for for joining us today. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and yes, come to the northeast. We can't guarantee nice weather, but you never know. You might be lucky. Oh yes, yes. It's there's plenty of nice weather. <laughs> I can assure that. Okay, thank you so much, Amina. Have a great day. Thank you, thank you everyone, Bye. for listening. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast.